My name is Lawrence Rosenberg, and it is my distinct privilege to welcome Jen Satterley back to the Alpha Human podcast. Jen spent a decade as a filmmaker and photographer, three years of which saw her embedded with the Navy SEALs and U.S. Army Special Forces, where she filmed highly realistic training missions. Now, during this time, she witnessed a serious lack of resources to aid the struggles that many special operators faced with respect to post-traumatic stress. Jen would go on to marry Tom Satterley, a retired Delta Force Command Sergeant Major, and become a certified health coach in her determination to help Tom in his battle with PTS and TBI. In doing so, she found her passion for helping other special operators and their families with similar challenges. Jen and Tom would go on to start the All Secure Foundation, which helps special operations combat warriors and their families heal the invisible wounds of war. Now, Jen is also the author of a new book, which I got to tell you, I'm very excited about. I've read it. Powerful, powerful book. It's called Arsenal of Hope, Tactics for Taking on PTSD Together, which is set to be released on February 23rd in just a few weeks. Jen, welcome back to the show. Hey, thank you for having me back. It's great to see you again. Yeah, great to see you. I, I got to tell you, the book you wrote is, um, it is brutally honest. Um, you share a lot about your personal life uh, and your life with Tom. Uh, and you also share how you guys overcame some incredible challenges. And I think that this book is really going to make an a big impact on a lot of people who both have PTS, but also those that don't and maybe know someone. Uh, there's so much great advice in this book. I, I got to say, I, I am so impressed and inspired with what you've done. Wow. Thank you. That's quite a welcome. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'll, I'll tell you what, um, you know, the, the title of the book, Arsenal of Hope, great title. But, um, you know, again, I, I think we really need to set the scene here for why I'm so effusive in my praise, because this is an extremely serious subject, which doesn't get nearly enough attention. So I'm going to I'm going to quote you just to kick things off. I'm going to quote right. you from the book. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. And I'm, I'm, I want to do this to kind of set the stage for the tone of this show. So here, here's the quote. Between 11 and 20 out of every 100 veterans who have seen conflict are now believed to have complex post-traumatic stress disorder, according to the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. This means roughly 20% of our military families are suffering because these soldiers do not suffer alone. PTSD brings everybody in the house chaos and pain. In September 2019, the Pentagon released the first ever report on military spouse and child suicides. The Department of Defense 2018 annual suicide report revealed 
that 123 spouses and 63 children took their own lives in 2017. War is not left in the sand overseas. It attaches itself to the soldier and oftentimes invisible parasite and settles into our homes where our men, women, and children are suffering largely in silence. According to the Department of Veterans Affairs, 22 soldiers kill themselves every day. More servicemen and women die in a single year than all of the American casualties of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars combined. Can you imagine how we'd respond if over 8,000 kindergarten teachers killed themselves every year? Would we look the other way like we do with our soldiers? Man, I'll tell you what, that, that is a powerful, powerful insight into what's going on out there. I got to ask you, Jen, have things always been this bad for our warriors coming home from war? Has something changed or has this just been ignored? I mean, according to Rand Corporation, according to their research, more than 45,000, this, this is just an unbelievable number, 45,000 veterans have died by suicide since the VA released its 20-a-day suicide uh, statistic six years ago. So in the last six years, 45,000 veterans have committed suicide. Jen, what, what, what's going on out there? You know, I want to touch on the first point, which is, has this always been going on? And what we hear often is, in fact, Tom and I just spoke to a large group of young Green Berets. They haven't even gone to combat yet. Tom and I do PTS resiliency training. So we go and kind of, this is what's coming ahead. Um, maybe, or maybe not for you, but it's good to have the awareness. Um, one of the guys in the room raised his hand and he said, why didn't the greatest generation not have issues? Why, you know, why do we not hear about it back then? And really, it wasn't talked about back then. It doesn't mean that people weren't suffering. In fact, both my literary agent and, and Tom's literary agent, his father served in the war and committed suicide. Um, it's wow. touched a bunch of people. It just wasn't talked about. Also, Colonel Ferris, who we work with, also brought up a really great point. He said, as terrible and awful as it was, they were usually sent overseas for a year to two years, sometimes a little bit longer, came back and went back to whatever day job they had. Mm -hmm. We're talking about career soldiers who have gone over and over again. And you've got someone like Tom who deployed for 20 years. And right. so that op tempo, that pace of constantly training, going overseas, and people think, oh, well, when they come home, when they come home, they're training. And sometimes it's not even in their hometown, so maybe they're leaving again for a few weeks. Mm -hmm. It's such a disruptive cycle to the family, and that is going to affect the soldier too. People take the family aspect out, which is a mistake. We know that 89% of the people that are committing suicide is after a family incident. So we have to include the families in this equation because it's a huge part of it, and I truly I think a few things have happened in society. We've become more comfortable with violence. Um, it's become more normalized. I think the soldier also thinks um, and has been trained that if there's a problem, um, you need to fix it or remove it. There's a no-fail mission, there's a no-fail life, 
And when the soldier's feeling like I'm failing, I'm failing, I'm failing, now who am I to my family? Who am I to the community? I'm nothing, right? I have no purpose. I have, I'm a greater detriment to my family than an asset. So I'm going to do what I've been trained to do, right? I'm going to take myself out of the equation. Mm. However, 90% of the people need to be heavily intoxicated to do it. So that tells us something as well. It's not that a soldier wants to commit suicide. It's that they've lost hope. Wow. Um, okay. So. <laughs> it's I, a mouthful. I, yeah. I mean, I, I want to talk about how helping warriors and their families deal with PTSD became a central theme in your life. Mm-hmm. But first, let, let's talk a bit about your journey to becoming someone adept at helping those in need. Because look, you're a bright, confident, bold, and motivated individual. I mean, in your own words, you don't give up easily. You're stubborn. You dig in, you dig in when faced with a challenge, but it wasn't always that way. You were pretty insecure as a kid. Oh, very. Tell us your story growing up. I was shy, quiet. Um, I came from a household that, you know, was layered with abuse and layered with PTS. I didn't understand this until I met Tom. So part of his healing journey was a huge part of my own healing journey. Um, My mom was raised by a schizophrenic father who was a violent schizophrenic in the 1940s, 50s, 60s. And back then the term was crazy, not schizophrenic. Mm -hmm. So he spent his life in and out of mental hospitals. Um, Schizophrenics can be abusive, he was. And um, never to my mom, but she witnessed it to uh, my my grandmother. So she was raised with so much trauma, untreated trauma that that was brought into my childhood. And so while I've come to appreciate what I went through, because I truly do believe it has helped inform my life today and has really helped me with the empathy piece of the puzzle. And... um, So I was this real shy, quiet, um, very much made myself small in my world because Mm -hmm. it was all about safety, security, and protection for myself. I knew if I got big, if I fought back, then that was a case for my mom to fight back. So I learned from a very early age, be small, be quiet, don't ruffle any feathers, and maybe you'll get through today okay. Mm -hmm. Um, The tough thing with PTS is that you, it doesn't follow a formula or a pattern. So even though I'd make myself small at times or try to say, the way you're a kid, you're going to mess up. You're going to knock something over. So it was this constant walking on eggshells, not really knowing when I was going to tip my mom off. So it became a challenge in my childhood. Making myself small like that obviously made the bullies say she's pretty attractive to you. Have fun with at school as well. So I... Um, I, I got the bullies that started on me in sixth grade, seventh grade. It got it had gotten so bad that I literally would tell my friends, like, don't sit next to me, you know, at recess. Just go over there. Let them come over here because if you're sitting next to me, they're going to, you know, jump on you too. Wow. I'll just take it. And that was – I never really gave that bit of hurt the attention. I always try to pass it off. Uh, it didn't really bother me. It was fine. I made jokes of it, but it did. Anytime you're excluded from a group, um, anytime you're isolated from your tribe, of course, that's going to impact you and impact your life. 
So, you know, I went from being very small Mm -hmm. to going the opposite direction. And I've heard so many women talk about this lately, too. And it's been so eye-opening for me in sharing my experience to hear other people bounce back theirs. Like, oh, I went from the quiet, shy girl to like, oh, I've got to be the tough girl. I've got to put my armor on. I've got to be the girl that doesn't care about anything or, um, you know, has reckless behavior and is chalking it up to, you know, I'm, I'm tough or I'm strong or I'm this or I'm that. So, yeah, it was a lot of a lot of insecurities, a lot of immaturities. And I had to grow up a whole lot. Well, so, you know, you so you go from making yourself like invisible almost to just completely 360 or <laughs> excuse me, 180 and, um, you know, becoming this this big personality. Uh, and di- I mean, so did that get you? I mean, that maybe that warded off the bullies, but did that get you into a lot of trouble growing up? Oh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I went from, I think I had like a switch flip. Something happened. I'm not quite sure. But I went from high school, you know, again, my freshman year, I got picked on a little bit and had some girls that would shove you into the locker thing. And I'm thinking, here I am again. So at that point in time, I was really close to my grandfather. By then he had healed from schizophrenia. Um, He lived a pretty normal life. And we were actually became very, very close. And I think His trauma, I wanted to comfort even as a kid. I always wanted to kind of make him laugh. I always wanted to, because he would um, get into a very serious mode, and sometimes I could tell he was kind of far off. Mm -hmm. So as a little, little kid, I would have joke books, and I could go over and tell him jokes, and then he'd laugh, and he had this real big laugh. Okay. And that felt good as a kid to, you know, make somebody else feel good. And so I think I always had this little bit of... um, mischievous humor kind of part of me and then in high school you know I think maybe junior senior year was when I went out started to go off the edge of okay okay, I you know I can have fun I can oh I like having fun oh I really like having fun um I started becoming the class clown I was voted class clown by the time I left senior year I had this like love-hate relationship with all my teachers, <laughs> like okay. literally the nun who's the principal at my Catholic all-girls school. When I left, she's like, <laughs> yeah, graduation. And I'm, hey, Sister Mary Phillip, you know, and um, but it was it was trauma that I didn't know I had. I didn't know how to treat. Um, okay. I had gone through therapy. I had a suicide attempt at 14. So. Um, I definitely was in a lot of therapy for a while. And while it helped, it wasn't enough. It wasn't the piece that kind of unlocked my trauma. Right. So I went the reckless route like so many people do. You know, you, you mentioned um, taking care of your, your grandfather. Um, you, o- you say in the book that you always took on the broken and wounded as your own. How, how so? Well, also in high school, my nickname was The Counselor. Really? Okay. <laughs> it was. The, so, go to The Counselor. I would have, um, and in fact, my the, the counselor at high school was awesome. I loved her. And she said, listen, Jen, I can't get to the girls the way that you can. They're, they don't share with me the way that they're sharing with a classmate. You can't carry all their stuff, though. And she said, I don't want you to tell me a name. You don't have to tell me what grade they're in. 
But once a week, I want you to come and sit in this office and I want you to dump what they just dumped on you. Mm. And you feel with me or you ask questions. So by the time senior year, I was doing that, maybe not once a week, but a couple times a month, I would go and see her and say, okay, well, you know, one of the students came to me because she's pregnant, you know, or mm-hmm. I have got another girl that just is suicidal or whatever it was. So there were some pretty heavy, big things for a 16, 17 year old girl, but I loved it. I loved feeling like I could help. And I think that distracted me from focusing on myself. If I'm constantly helping other people and I'm constantly made me feel good. Um, I loved helping them out, but I was distracted from dealing with my stuff. Frankly. So, yeah, it's interesting because you, you clearly were um, feeling a passion for that kind of outlet in your life. You, you end up going to college, you, you, you would think maybe for psychology, right? Instead, you, pursue, you, you went to college and pursued a career in advertising. <laughs> um, yes. So I, I, I want to I get into that. But of course, it, uh, it's funny how eventually you ended up doing what you're doing now, which is, which is clearly what you have a passion for. But tell us about your career in advertising. Um, were you, were you driven from the time you went to college to break into, uh, the, the, the world of advertising? Ish. I kind of came on it later. So I actually went to school for anthropology. Okay. I, from a very little girl, I wanted to be Indiana Jones. I had my bubble burst by one of my favorite teachers, Dr. Finkelstein. I also had all these learning disabilities, Mm -hmm. dyslexia, none of it was diagnosed. So I just always thought I was stupid. I just thought I don't test well. I don't, you know, everything was a struggle. I always had tutors, um, math, forget it. So I was really insecure around studying. I was really insecure around intellect or or education. But the one thing I was really good at was history and completely and utterly obsessed. So by the time I'm in sixth grade, I'm reading every book I can on Egypt, on the Mayans. And so went to school for anthropology thinking I was going to dig in ruins and travel around the world. And my teacher's like, um, you'll know you're like probably going to be about 32 before you go on your first dig. And then it'll be another couple of years before you do that because then you're going to have to go back and teach and lecture for years. And I'm like, oh, wait, I want to like the whip and the hat and like, <laughs> treasure. And he's like, it's for the movies. Like maybe you should think about something else if you don't want to be a teacher. I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't want to be a teacher. I love teachers, but like I said, teachers and I, I'm like, I don't think that's that's not my thing. So I stumbled into advertising really. Um, okay. I loved writing. I loved creative arts. I was a photo- um, studied photography in high school. Um, did a lot of writing in high school. So when I kind of looked at like, okay, now what? What am I going to do? Um, I really started evaluating, what do I like to do? Well, I like the arts, so I'll go pick something in the arts then. Um, It doesn't require math or science (laughs) creds to graduate, so I'll go do that one. And I loved it. I had a great career in it. I really got to meet exceptional people. Mm -hmm. It fulfilled my personality type, which is I'm always searching for the new, the next, the entrepreneur kind of spirit in me. So every couple months, I would work on a new client you know, and so I was always learning other people's businesses, everything from I worked with like St. Louis Cardinals. So I got to see wow. behind the scenes in, in Major League Baseball. I worked with Jack Daniels and got to go down to Lynchburg. So 
it was always these different experiences that I loved and craved. And frankly, when I started working in the military, it to me at first was like another client. Like, okay, I'll just approach this like another okay. client because I've been all over the board in many places I don't wouldn't have thought I belonged. <laughs> yeah. So straight I mean, you say in the book, straight out of college, you became the only female art director at a highly competitive testosterone filled design agency with wannabe soldiers. Yes. What was, what, what was that experience like? <laughs> oh my gosh. It was like college part two, really. So it was a super, super competitive um, design firm in St. Louis. They would get like 100, 150 applications a week. So people coming out of college, nobody even applied. Nobody even, they're like, nope. You know, they take people from around the world. They're really small. They only have 30 people that work there. It's impossible. And I'm like, well, I'll apply. You know, I, I'll see. And all my classmates were like, you're nuts. So mm -hmm. I went to all the other advertising agencies in town before them because I was scared too. I was like, well, maybe I shouldn't do my first interview with like the big job. I'll go and <laughs> break it in with others. Um, and luckily nobody hired me because then, I, you know, it was a really frustrating summer out of college. Like, gosh, I have interviewed like a hundred times and all of my friends but one gave up. All of them went to different industries. They're like, this is too hard. There's no jobs, you know, I'm gonna go into food service or I'm gonna go to here. And I'm like, I just spent all this money and time studying this, I'm doing this. And um, I told them that I would clean their floors. I told them that I just wanted to be there. Just mm -hmm. let me watch, let me earn my tab. And um, I interviewed with them about 10 times. Wow. And then they took me on as their first female art director and was only female art director the four years I was there. So I, I've always been a tomboy. I've always been comfortable working, hanging out with guys. So for me, it was kind of natural situation. And um, but yeah, they 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 would play Black Hawk Down constantly. We had this giant giant screen that's probably two stories tall in the back, where you would show the sexy ads and stuff when the clients came and have right. this show. And here's your drinks and here's your ad. But they would constantly play war movies at work and like I'm sitting there trying to do an ad or something and I'm like can you guys turn off Black Hawk Down so when I met Tom they were like have you seen Black Hawk Down I'm like oh no oh, not that movie again right. um but you know what every experience I've had made me stronger they pushed me really hard mm -hmm. they were not easy on me I didn't want them to be I said treat me the same as everyone else and they did um so it was tough it was challenging and it was awesome at the same time. But, you know, like all good things, they must come to an end. So, yes, um, move on. <laughs> well, OK, so so along the way, you you ended up getting married. You had children. Right. So you, you started yeah. a family uh, and that was your first marriage, correct? Yes, correct. OK. Yeah. And, and I've got uh, a big 17 year old almost uh, next to me now who is taller than Tom, bigger than Tom. He's 62. Wow. So I'm like, hey, get your homework done. That's right. you know? <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow, wow. So so you, you've got this high power job. You're also raising a family. Um, at some point, you leave that company. Uh, and eventually, you end up starting your own boutique advertising uh, and film studio. What, what was it like striking out on your own and becoming an entrepreneur? Loved it. 
I love it. I'm a serial entrepreneur. <laughs> I'm like, who wants me to start something else next? I wow. won't finish it, but just let me start it. Because um, <laughs> I love starting. And um, so I I absolutely loved it. I When I left, it's funny because now I talk to some of the guys from 20 years ago when I worked at that agency core, I talk to some of them now and we have a great relationship. A few of them, including some of the owners, not so much. Mm -hmm. So um, I had been preparing for about a year before I left to start my own thing. So I never wanted to poach a client. I didn't believe in unethical practices. So I went and worked nights and weekends on the side to build my own client base. Mm -hmm. And then after things got bad and left with my middle finger up, I went and had my own clients ready and hit the ground running and I loved it. I mean, of course, there's challenges starting your own thing and it's scary and, you know, you you eat peanut butter for a while while you try to figure it out. But I love the challenge of starting something and building something. So it was fun. Well, you talk about challenges. So you end up becoming embedded with special operations units, filming large scale and dangerous realistic military training exercises. So I'll quote you from the book, large scale, realistic, special operations, military training exercises were classified, critical, and dangerous. I filmed every single moment from the time the unit landed at the airfield, set up their joint operation center, meetings, intel, planning missions, and training, and then flowed along when they would shoot the enemies or save hostages, or bust drug cartels. The footage was used to evaluate their tactics and techniques. This would help them get better. This would help keep them alive. How did you get the opportunity to film these classified training missions? I begged. <laughs> I begged. Is that the secret to sales success? It is. Be relentless, beg, plead, do whatever you need to do. Tell them you don't even need to pay me, which I did at first. Wow. Um, so I was introduced to the group through the advertising world. So I was hired okay. to do a commercial with some of the guys, including Tom, who I didn't even talk to the first two times I shot with him. Okay. Um, when I was working with this other company and they were doing like entertainment kind of stuff, the guy who owned it said, well, I do RMTs too. And I'm like, what's that? He's like, well, it's where the military practices, what they're going to do overseas before they go overseas. And I had no idea. I was like, oh, that sounds cool. And he's like, yeah, you know, they fully practice. So there's helicopters, there's all this, you know, blah, blah, blah. I started explaining. I'm like, can I go? And he's like, what do you mean? Like, can you go? I'm like, can I watch? Like, is it something as a civilian I could see? And he's like, well, you could be a role player. Like we have civilian role players come mm -hmm. and you sign all these papers and do all this stuff. But I said, I'll be a role player. I just want to see, like, I've never seen special operations or anybody at work like that. So mm -hmm. he said, you know what? Okay. Um, I've got a ranger contract down at Fort Benning. Um, why don't you come down? I said, can I bring my camera? And he said, uh, sure, but we don't do that. And I said, well, I've got an idea and I want to tell it to you when I get down there. So he had a little meeting and I said, listen, so I did some work with St. Louis Cardinals. They film everything. They go down to this cool little basement room and they review all the plays. They study the enemy. You know, they study the plays. They study the pitches. They study 
every bit of it to get better. Like you guys should do that. You guys should film every bit of it. And then um, what they call AARs, after action reviews, then you could go and look at the footage and get better. And he's like, oh, that's kind of interesting. And there have been comment camera people, but like nobody brings cameras on this thing. So, you know, everybody's checking their phones in and everything mm -hmm. else. So he asks the command and says, hey, she's got this idea. Can she come on site? They finally agreed. Everybody kind of agreed up the chain. So first exercise, a Blackhawk. I mean, literally, my shirt was blowing up. My hair was up because it was so low. And, you know, all these guys are fast roping in. And I'm like, whoa, like, this is crazy. Like, who gets to see this? And wow. taking down and going across this field. And vehicles are coming in this way. And bad, you know, the fake bad guys are coming in this way. And there's RPGs and explosions. And I'm like, I just stepped into a movie or something. Like, I want to film this. So I'm filming all this stuff. And then the commander's like, and I walked over and he goes, delete your card in front of me right now. And I was wow. like, oh, I have permission to be here. He's like, not by me. Delete your card. So I'm like, oh, I guess this isn't going to work. Um, you know, I, I was so terrified that I got the company in trouble. Like, mm -hmm. I had to go back and I'm like, they told me to delete the card. And I'm thinking, here, I got myself in trouble in like in trouble with spec ops is probably not a good place to be in trouble. Mm -hmm. But um, there was another guy on the on the mission and he was like, I actually think this is a great idea and we have another iteration and she should come on and film. So literally that's how it started. I just kept asking, can I come? Is there another one? Can I come? Yeah, we're gonna do the seal. I, I wanna go on the seal one, can I come? And so, yeah, I mean, I got a lot of strange looks for the next couple of years, but a lot of like, who are you? What are you doing here? Um, you know, you've got a girl in the corner with a big camera and they're like, what? and I'm like, oh, I'm filming, filming this for your command. And then all of a sudden everybody, you know, sucks in the gut a little bit more and right. <laughs> what I'm working. So right. yeah, it was amazing though. So, I mean, this, this was uh, this was life. This was life or death. Actually, these. I mean, you, I'm going to. I'm quoting you here. Actually, um, you say that this was life or death all the time. That weight was there. The exercises had to be as realistic realistic as possible. So while training to rescue others, people died. So I, I mean, I don't think people realize how. I mean, first of all, that this kind of training actually goes on let alone that that these operators can die in these you know in these war games so to speak what was that like from your perspective i mean did you ever think that the training exercises you were filming would be that dangerous initially no no at first it was like this is like a hollywood action film slash national geographic experience i've always wanted um so cool, so amazing. I'm meeting all of these operators from all over and all different kinds of people. And I just thought, this is fantastic. I love this. And then really the very first exercise, um, a seal was killed. Uh, mm. The vehicle rolled and I thought, wait, what? I'm like, wait, somebody just died. They're like, yep, we've got to wrap it up. We got to go, it's done. This exercise is over. And I'll never forget, I asked Tom, I looked at him and I said, does this, gosh, this must be really, I was just so sad. I'm like, this is awful. And here he is in Indiana, you know, and, and he right. was killed in Indiana. And he's like, Jen, people die in training all the time. And I'm like, wait, 
what? They do? And, you know, he's naming off stuff. Oh, yeah, this helicopter, you know, blade was low on one area and this guy got decapitated. And this guy, you know, the helicopter lost power and the helicopter fell when a bunch of guys were fast roping. They were all killed. I mean, it's, I mean, he was just example, 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 example. And that's when I'm like, wow, this is, this isn't Hollywood. This isn't for fun. This isn't for games. People here can die practicing to do what they're going to go do overseas where they hope they don't die. And right. that weight is so intense. I had girlfriends like, oh, you're going out with the SEALs for a week. Like, how cool is that? I'm like, it's not like that. It's not about that. Mm-hmm. This is serious. And, and when you look at their faces, when they know my next stop is over there, and if I make the mistake I just made here over there, I'm going to die. And the couple guys around me probably will die too. That weight you can't – it's so heavy. It is so, so heavy. And you got the hell beat out of you. Um, you talk about it in the book. I mean, it, it wasn't just tough for, for the, for the guys, uh, who were involved in the training, uh, and, or the role players as well, for but, sure. uh, but for you as well, you, you got, I mean, you really got, uh, knocked around. Yeah, I did. And it, you know, I'm a brush it off kind of girl. I rode dirt bikes and stuff growing up. So, you know, there was a couple of times I broke my finger and I never, I didn't reset it because we were out in the field. So it's the other day I was like, oh, my finger still hurts so bad from that. Tom's like Savannah. I'm like, yes, from Savannah. But, um, but, you know, I never felt like based on what they were doing, based Mm -hmm. on their injuries, based on their risk, I felt like I'm not even going to compare myself or anything to. So, you know, I had one guy butt me, literally had the gun and turned and butt me in my face, you know, got knocked down hills, sprained ankles. And I'm like, I'm good. It's good. It's good. (laughs) Keep going. Um, Because, I mean, that's nothing compared to what they go through. Nothing. So let's go. (laughs) Right, right. so even though everything you were filming was simulated, the the scenarios were intense, and they were hyper realistic. This must have been fertile ground for PTS to rear its head. How how much of that did you see? I mean, in the book, you tell a story about an FBI agent trying to disarm a WMD, and how the pressure, even though the entire scenario was staged, was like incredibly intense. And he started spinning out, right? I mean, what? Oh, totally. He totally but, did. Yeah. So, and that so, happened. Okay. So, and while I'm reading it, I'm like, it's, it's, a, it's a training exercise, but like, I got the feeling that this individual had the feeling like that was an, a WMD, like this was really going For down. Sure. So, so this must have been um, just like s- seedlings for PTS to, to just, sprout and rear its ugly head did you see that kind of thing show up a lot not a lot but i saw it show up and really i should say i saw it all over the place it just looked normal when you were in the soup of it right so like the reckless behavior the drinking the you know all the stuff that comes along with untreated trauma yeah that was everywhere you know all over the place i didn't recognize it as that at the time Um, There were a few incidences like the FBI agent because, and I try to explain this to my friends too, it's really one of those things where I'm like, I wish you could just be there because 
it is kind of hard to explain, but because people are like, oh, but it's just pretend. There's no timeout. Nobody ever, ever breaks character or role. I shouldn't even say character. Nobody breaks their um, the responsibilities, the reaction. Everything's being tested. Everything's being measured. Everything's being practiced and rehearsed. And it is life or death. So it there's no, you know, the role players never, ever, ever allowed to break character. Never. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to say real world in order to get their time out, right? And that's like something better be really wrong, you know, if you're, you're right. stopping this massive exercise. Um, so, you know, I, I saw one guy who tripped a wire. So we had suicide vest, we had, um, car bombs, we had trip wires, everything. So he had crossed a trip wire. He didn't see the Mm -hmm. explosion went off. So, um, often either a team member or maybe Tom, who was target controller would often say, okay, you're dead. You lost an arm and a leg you lost an arm and an eye. So that way the medics can come in and then they rehearse. And they rehearse just as real too. I mean, helicopters are coming in, they're medevacking people out. Yeah. They're, it's the whole thing, exactly what you would see. And um, this group had just come back from a, they had only been back maybe eight months, had gone through a training cycle, were getting ready to go back again, maybe not even eight months. And they had lost a couple guys this last trip. And I knew this was getting towards the end of me where I'm like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. Um, but he hit the wire. He was tapped out as dead. The guy behind him tapped down has lost both legs. And he lost it. I mean, he was screaming, yelling, cussing, kicking thing. I mean, full on. I looked at Tom and I'm like, because you just didn't see that often. You know, everybody mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. very professional, calm, cool. And, you know, mm-hmm. and um I said, what do we do? What do we do? Like, this guy's losing it. And mm-hmm. Tom's like, like, there's nothing to do. Just keep filming. And to me, it felt so, as an empath, I'm like, it, uncomfortable, right? Just uncomfortable mm-hmm. to see someone in that kind of pain, that kind of trauma. And I'm thinking, this guy's got to go back over? Like, in wow. two weeks? Don't send that guy back over. I'm scared he won't come back. Wow. You know? And so... It was around. I saw it. Um, but really, like you said, it, it, it can be either a disastrous situation or a lot of guys are laughing it off. But mainly everyone's totally focused, totally um, in work mode and they're focused. And it's long, long, long hours. It's literally 16, 18, 20 hour days. So everybody's pretty tired by the end of it, too, which brings out the best in PTS and <laughs> warriors too. Right. And and I bring it up because this is this is perhaps where you first start to see this, you know, this unseen, uh, these unseen wounds of war start to manifest among the special operations community. Um, I'm going to quote you here. While embedded with special operations units surrounded by aggressive tough guys, I fell in love with one of them. Command Sergeant Tom Satterley, a senior non-commissioned officer in the most secretive and elite special operations unit in the U.S. military, a legend even among other tier one special operators. Picture a mixture of Jason Bourne, James Bond, and Rambo. In other words, a highly trained, highly deadly soldier, a badass. 
So first off, for those unfamiliar with Tom, tell us a bit about him and and then tell us how you guys developed a relationship and fell in love. It's uh it's an intense story. <laughs> Just a little, everything we do is intense, Tom and I. We always take it to 11. Like, if we're going to go, go. Um, so, yeah, Tom and I, what was the first part? I, I I can get to the. Tell 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 it first for those, for the uninitiated. Who's Tom? How can I forget? Who's Tom? Who's and Tom? And by the way, he would hate that. He's a legend among other operators. He, he like, I know. He's, like, yeah. If you put that in, I'm like, you are. Be quiet. But, <laughs> I think he is. He's my hero for sure. Um, so Tom served 25 years in the Army. 20 of those was in Delta Force. He His very first combat mission was portrayed in Black Hawk Down. So he was at Crash Site 1 um, for those 18 hours. It was the longest sustained firefight since Vietnam. That's where his PTS started. He was 26 years old. He really resigned himself that he wasn't coming back, that he wasn't going to leave Somalia. So that's where his switch got flipped um, mm -hmm. that night. He did not decide to leave after that. He decided to push harder and was involved in hundreds and hundreds of campaigns over those years, hostage rescues and um, capturing and killing high value targets and terrorists and all kinds of things all over the world. Mm -hmm. um, he was instrumental in the capture of Saddam Hussein. So he's done a few things. I don't know. Right. All right. <laughs> right. Just a few. Just a few. Um, but the funny thing is I didn't even know what Delta Force was when I met him. They mm -hmm. walked me down the hallway. You're going to meet this guy. You know, he was in Black Hawk Down and I just told you about my Black Hawk Down story. So I'm like, right. Oh my God. If I had to hear here, cause I didn't really see it. If I had to hear that movie one more time, <laughs> that guy's like, have you seen that movie? And I didn't want to be asked questions about it. Cause frankly, it had been 20 years. So I was like, no, I haven't seen it. He's like, Right. Well, he was in Delta Force in that. And I said, what's that? And he turned and he was like, and I go, that's like a seal, right? And he goes, don't, just don't ever, <laughs> don't. This is a former Delta Force member that I'm walking with as he's telling me this. Oh, my God. And so he's like, you you should probably do some research. You should probably watch some movies. You know, I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll get on that. And But I was expecting to meet like this mega soldier right and i right. go in he's 60 pounds overweight mm -hmm. he's you know not that impressive so i'm like hmm, well okay nice to meet you and frankly he didn't think i was very impressive either apparently because he <laughs> totally didn't remember me at all from the first couple times we met so um we you know i think I always joke that PT, my PTS was attracted to his PTS, but there's probably some truth in that. And right. you just kind of can sense sometimes like, oh, you've been through some stuff too. And that's obvious where Tom was and what he did. But, you know, it's funny, the first two years, if I would have said, do you think you have PTSD? He would say, absolutely not. No, nope, I don't. Uh -huh. I don't have that. And I started reading and I'm like, you kind of fit the symptoms, friend, you know, and we really did. We became great friends. He had this wicked sense of humor and this um, this charm about him. But the dark side, the dark side was always there from the beginning, too. I always joke that we started at divorce and now we've worked our way to the honeymoon <laughs> phase. So we've gone right. completely backwards. Um, in our relationship, but we were going through divorces at the same time. That's heartbreak. Mm -hmm. That's so hard, especially when you have children involved. 
we were comparing notes a lot. He had been through a few more divorces <laughs> than I. I'd only okay. done it once. Um, but I think really as different as we were, we also had this commonality between us. And, you know, people always ask me like, oh, I read your book. Like, why did you get with Tom in the first place exactly? Or I read Tom's book and wow, that's an intense start. And I'm like, everything Tom and I do is an intense start. Mm. So it's just appropriate for us. So um, did you, so you started, you know, you, you noticed potentially, you know, PTS, but did you know, did, did you, when did you understand how bad it really was? You know, at first I was like, this guy's kind of a jerk and he's got a drinking problem. Okay. <laughs> like, you know, and he's kind of like all the other guys around me that okay. drink too much and, you know, say things that are off color. Then I'm like, don't say that out here in the civilian world. Like, don't, you know, like, wow, this world is way different. Right. Um, I didn't see it as PTSD until I started seeing the rage. When I okay. when we got close enough that he felt comfortable getting angry in front of me, that's when I'm like, I I recognize this, right? Okay. I recognize this from my mom. I recognize this Jekyll and Hyde personality. Um, I didn't know what it was. I didn't even know that my mom had PTSD. So um, it wasn't really until after our wedding when I was like, all right, we need to get to work or we need to separate. And that was the toughest, one of the toughest days of my life was giving, it wasn't an ultimatum, but you need to get help for real or you're going to take us both down. And I don't mm. want to go down. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm going to read this from the book because it's, you know, it, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty impactful. So <clears throat> I'll quote you here. When my husband and I were first together, Neither of us realized the extent that Tom, a 25-year combat veteran, was battling with full-blown, complex, post-traumatic stress. It wasn't rare for a calm and peaceful, even joyful moment to come crashing down unexpectedly and often unprovoked. Tom becomes this someone else in order to do the work he has to do, killing, capturing, interrogating, crawler. Tom's call sign is an effing asshole at all times. Always intense. That man doesn't belong in a house. He belongs to the war. He's frightening. He is the warrior. And with the flip of a switch, I would become the enemy to be destroyed. Can Tom control the flip of the switch? If he can, does he know how? Or maybe he doesn't want to. That last was the worst thought of all. I perpetually walked on eggshells, or more aptly, I was, stepping, I was stepping lightly through a minefield. You can't predict what an unpredictable man will do. It'll make you crazy trying. For years, I did try. I failed. It made me more insecure, more isolated. I kept myself distant from him to protect myself, but also distant from our friends and family to protect Tom. On the day our fight turned into a physical tussle, I watched Crawler turn back into my, into my Tom, my husband. I leaned against the wall, shaking. No more fight left in me. This was over a cup in the sink. In that moment, I had to decide, would I keep loving this man? 
Looking at the face of the wounded warrior before me, I knew I could not live without him. He was my person. So I decided I would love him, even when I didn't want to, even if the outside world would never understand why. But I would not live like this either. I, ha I had grown to love someone else throughout this, myself. And I wouldn't allow anyone I love to be treated this way. And neither would Tom. We had to be strong enough to change. And thank God he agreed. So, Jen, what, what was the first thing that you did together that actually made a difference? Well, you know, if I could go back and do it all again, I probably would do it a little bit differently. Okay. I pushed so hard for his healing that I didn't realize that that was part of the problem. It was coming from a place truly of love. It was coming from a place of wanting peace for mm -hmm. us both. It was all well-intentioned, but I was doing this. You know, I was pushing and pushing. You've got to try this and you've got to get this. I didn't realize what I was doing is make, was making him more insecure, making him more embarrassed, more ashamed. Um, it's so important to create awareness around your behavior so that you can change them. But I was literally with a bat in one hand and a frying pan in the other all the time. And so I would have approached it a little bit differently. Now I would have come in um, with a different approach. But, you know, the first thing that we, we truly did was he went and saw an anger management specialist, um, okay. a therapist. And he saw this guy. He was Eric Clapton's. Uh, substance abuse therapist, so real good. It was a, you know, wow. great guy uh, located in Savannah. And Tom goes to see him for anger management because that was the first step of you go do something with this anger or I don't know how we can exist anymore. Um, this man told him, you don't have anger issues, you have PTS. Uh, you don't have, you're not an alcoholic, you're a problem drinker. So let's start dealing with the PTSD. And he came home and he was so, not home, it was on a phone, called me and he was so light. He was just so, I could hear it in his voice. Like wow. someone had named it for him. Someone had given this a label and we all hate labels until it's like, that's what's wrong with me. I understand it now. Now that I know what it is, I can tackle it. And for Tom, that was huge. It was like, show me, tell me, and then I'll do it. And And he was phenomenal with it. I'm like, hey, let's go do um transcranial magnetic stimulation which is shocks and he did that for 36 weeks he did mm -hmm. yoga or pilates or anything that i was like you should try these supplements you should um he did uh, meditation work and so all of these pieces added up to healing and even today if somebody said is there one thing i don't know about one thing right i wish there was one thing right but i think it's many things Okay. Yeah, I, I could imagine. And and you, you talk about in the book how you're still finding new insights that, you know, just blow your mind. And then you tell Tom about it and he's like, whoa. And so it's a journey. You know, yes. I, I can I can see that clearly now that I've read your book. It, it's it, it's clear that that's the case. Um, but you also said like you said, quote, I definitely did not understand that complex secondary post-traumatic stress disorder was messing with my ability to be a good partner. Who knew that was even a thing? What is SPTSD? What is that? So secondary 
is when someone has post-traumatic stress. So that post-traumatic stress disorder is going to come from either a traumatic situation or something that happens over time. Complex means, um, let's say you have PTSD because you were in a really, really bad car accident. Mm -hmm. Um, You saw some really bad things and that's haunting you. So that's PTSD. Complex is um, the trauma that gets repeated over and over and over again. So it could be um, my situation of growing up in an abusive household, or it could be going off to war. It could be our first responder seeing things in the streets over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. So secondary PTS is when that trauma is in the home and those symptoms all of a sudden become your symptoms. So wow. when you know Tom has anger in the home and then my response then becomes, how do I deal with this anger? How do I deal with this rage? How do I deal with the depression or the anxiety? Therefore, it's going to cause a reflex or trauma in me. So his behavior can trigger um, or cause me to have the symptoms of PTSD. And it happens in children. um, It happens in spouses, family members, really most common people that are in the home that are most closely living day to day Mm -hmm. um, with the affected person. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about one of those one of those insights that you came upon, it was with a therapist. Um, I read it. I thought it was like an amazing insight. Um, quote, Stacy Stone, our therapist told us when one of you wins, the relationship loses. What is that concept that she's referring to? And how did that change things? I love it. So I had it on a post-it note on our mirror in our bathroom forever in Tom and I repeat it to each other. Like I just heard it, I think two nights ago, Jen, you're trying to win. We're losing. And it snaps me out of it immediately. I'm like, he's right. I am trying to win. And all this is doing is progressing into us losing. So, Mm. you know, every, I mean, we're human, right? We want to be right. We want Mm -hmm. to get our point across. We all want to be heard. Every person wants to be heard and seen. So, you know, when we fight often, I mean, not Tom and I, but anyone who fights, People are trying to get their point. They're trying to win. And when you can't hear the other side, when you're not listening, when you're not putting empathy in or at least trying to come from a place of understanding, all you're, you're closed off. You're not hearing anything. You're not processing anything. You're certainly not c- trying to come to an agreement. All it is is a perpetual fight to see who can push that nuclear button to win. And when that happens, the relationship tanks. It just does. So Tom and I learned that us – You know, not Tom, not Jen, but the us was more important than us individually in that moment. You know, Mm. we we know that our individual selves are very important. Our us is very important. But when that us is being threatened by our own ego, by our own, I'm going to win this, then we're like, all right, we need to stop. This is getting nowhere fast. And I don't want to sleep in the other room tonight. So let's let's fix this. Right. And we do. We have a game plan for fighting because it's not if it's when. And um, we talk about that with couples all the time. Have a plan. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a great, great insight and, uh, you know, great strategy. Um, so, you know, as you're, as you're seeing PTS um, kind of manifest amongst the special operators that you and Tom are working with, um, you come to see how, or quote you, I came to see my purpose was not filming realistic training missions. Uh, I'd been in that job. I'd been in that place for, for a purpose. 
But now it was time to transfer my knowledge and skill set to a brand new area to actually helping these warriors. But exactly how could I give back to them? So how did you give back? And how did your role with these operators evolve? It really started on these RMTs. There would be these huge blocks of time where, you know, we're setting up, getting ready. The, the, the people that were working as playing the bad guys or role players often were also special operation guys. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of them were either retired or end of time in service or so. I became really good friends with the guys that we worked with, along with, you know, the guys that were in the exercise. I'm not talking to them much. They're, I'm a fly on the wall. I'm not there. They're not supposed to know me. I'm not supposed to know them. Okay. It really came about more from talking to the guys that were playing um, fit force or playing, you know, role players that had spent their career in special operations. And the story was so common. Now, I went to school. I, I did health coaching. That came from an interest in understanding the biology and understanding how biology played a part Mm -hmm. here because I will tell you the lifestyle. One day I told Tom, I'm like, I think I'm dying. I literally think something's wrong with me. I need to go to a doctor. I'm dying. He's like, you're on a RMT. You're fine. He's like, we haven't slept in four days. You know, you haven't eten in 24 hours. Um, I'm a blood sugar girl too, like hangry, like Tom's like, we got to feed her because we we need to. Um, So I would have these side conversations all the time. We'd be waiting for, you know, the seals to come in and you might have two or three hours where you're waiting after everything's set up Mm -hmm. and it's kind of like, okay, they're supposed to be here in 15, 20, 30. Okay. A vehicle did this. Okay. So you just end up talking and sharing stories. And I'm like, gosh, I don't care if I'm with a ranger or a seal or a green beret. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. The stories are so similar. Not okay. how they got PTS, but how they feel now. But nobody's talking about it. And then I really started to see um, the exercise would be over. It would be a weekend and maybe we'd have some downtime. And I started to actually get to know some of the guys um, that we were working with. And I'm like, gosh, this guy's like 26 and hearing him talk, he sounds like he's 50, mm-hmm. you know, or I'm, I'm hearing this guy who's 30 saying he's going through a second divorce. And I'm like, or this other guy who's talking about a drinking problem, he's hiding. And I'm like, do you talk with your other teammates about this? Or how do you guys help each other out? And it was like, like, what are you talking about? You know, we don't talk right. about that. And I'm like, yeah, but it's killing you guys. Like this, this veil of secrecy, this veil of shame is literally killing you more than the enemy is. Like we are our greatest enemy then. So I just, it really just started coming out of these long conversations. And then they'd be like, hey, I, uh, can I call you after a deployment? Because I have a lot of, you know, I have some issues with my family when I come back. Sure, here's my phone number. And then it would be, hey, can you talk to my wife? Sure, put her on the phone. Um, and so it just, All Secure Foundation started that way of just talking, having conversations, hearing stories, hearing the need, hearing the gap. Where are you guys feeling you don't have the catch? Where is that safety net you guys are missing? Mm-hmm. Nine times out of 10, the answer to that was at home. I don't know what to do at home. And I was like, all right, that's what we got to do. And then, you know, statistics and studies proved 89% of suicides are happening after a family disturbance. So, you know, I, I started saying we need to start adding all these pieces up together here because mm-hmm. – 
I don't want to look at these guys in the face again and, and wonder which one isn't coming back, not because of overseas, but because they couldn't take it anymore. And, you know, I in my civilian life, I um, knew two people that committed suicide and Tom couldn't count. And I'm like, there's a real problem there wow. if you don't know how many. And in fact, we just spoke at a group um, of Green Berets and we asked each of the groups. We had first the E9s and above how many of you have been affected by suicide? Meaning, you know somebody closely related to you who has committed suicide. Every single hand went up in the room. When we went to the cadre, you know, they're 28 to 35-ish, 80% of the hands went up. Now, in the younger group, we're like, okay, we're talking to 500 young Green Berets out of the X program. And, you know, it's a big room. Younger guys have never been overseas before. Most, they've never been in combat these hands are going to be a lot lower. And they were, but it was still at least 60, 70% in the room. Really? We're doing this. And every time I have goosebumps now because it is so heartbreaking. And my civilian friends think half the time I'm making it up. They're like, there's no way. There's no way almost 8,000. Or as you said before, over 50,000, 45,000. There's no way because we would have heard about it. Right. That's what that's what you think. How right? How did I not hear about that number? Right. Yes. It's shocking. I mean, so you guys, so you and Tom co-founded the All Secure Foundation um, because you were get, you're, 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 you end up having so many of these conversations. And, and as you say, you're, you're kind of seeing the patterns. And so you, you kind of go all in. You and Tom start this All Secure Foundation. Tell us about the foundation's work. All Secure Foundation originally started as a resource library. I felt so alone and so isolated, as did Tom in this struggle, that mm -hmm. it wasn't something like I would, you know, call a girlfriend up whose husband's an accountant and be like, hey, does your husband do this? Or, hey, is this normal in your household? Because I didn't, I felt like this can't be normal. Like this, what we're experiencing, nobody else has experienced because this is crazy. Like this is some extreme living. And I became depressed. I mm -hmm. developed anxiety. I developed secondary PTS symptoms, mm -hmm. um, even had suicidal ideations. Mm -hmm. So um, I get it. I lived it. And I thought, I can't let other people not know where to go for help. Mm -hmm. And so I really just started collecting all of the resources that Tom and I had used, um, the nonprofits we had used, the um, services, what worked for us, what didn't work for us. And I just thought it would be that, like, we'll just share resources with people and information. And then people started saying, well, we want to learn from you guys, or do you guys have any programs? And I said, you know what we need to do? We need to do a program. I'd love to do a program. So we developed special operation uh, warrior couple retreats. So those are really small groups, uh, 12 couples. Stacy Stone comes from the book. She's the oh, amazing okay. miracle unicorn worker. Literally, Tom has had unit guys are like, I'm not talking to anybody. And we're like... He's like, all right, cool, but here's Stacy's number. If if you want to, the foundation covers it. So, and then they'll call back like two weeks later, like I I, I got with her, and uh, I don't know what she does, but <laughs> I don't know what she does or who she is. She, there's something wrong with her, or spectacular with her, and we're like, it's spectacular. So, mm. she comes on these retreats. Tom and I go, and. It's not a death by PowerPoint. We're not going to sit up there and click and go, this is the biology of PTSD. We mm -hmm. are going to arm you with information. It's important. Um, we are going to help create awareness on what's going on in your particular life, not the group's life. This is a mm -hmm. couple's retreat. 
Um, we do do things as groups. We do do things as couples. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, Most of ours are at Big Cedar, which is Johnny Morris's um, resort down in southern Missouri. He's the founder of Bass Pro. So it's this beautiful right. outdoor place. He's one of our um, donors. He's huge, huge, huge military supporter. So we go into these places that are nature-filled. We do things like we might talk about PTS triggers and then go skeet shooting. We might gotcha. talk about who's in the driver's seat, about about winning and losing. And we go on this golf cart tour through fountains and rivers and everything. And so even though it's like a lot of fun and people are like, oh, my God, that was that was like one of the best weekends I had. Most people are leaving with here's some tools. Here's some tips. This is what I got to work on. This is what we have to work on. And we will come up with what's next for you. Do you need therapy? Do you need couples therapy? Do you need substance abuse help? Um, are you doing pretty good and you just need some refreshers, some TED Talks and books? Mm-hmm. So many people can get through this on their own. It's not, it's a difficult road, but once mm-hmm. you have that compass and map, you can figure it out. Gotcha. You know, y- yeah. you really can. If we can do it, anyone can. And we figured it out. Everything's figure outable. So, I mean, that's, that's great news. Um, I want to get into some of the, um, you know, some of the roots of this, 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 you know, this syndrome, this issue. Um, How does PTSD arise in combat veterans? I'll I'll quote you here. We know that long-term stress has powerful negative effects on the body. Part of a soldier's complex PTSD is called moral injury, an age old concept that is finally getting talked about in medical terms. What is moral injury? I'm so glad you asked. Nobody ever asked me about moral injury. It's, you know, it's a really, I, it, it's age old, right? It's, it's been around since the beginning of time when mm-hmm. the first man killed the other man. It's been there. So um, it's not a new idea, but it's n- new to the discussion. Okay. And really, you know, there was a lot of talk about this in World War One. Um, we don't see it again, really, until a little bit in Vietnam. And then now it's really just starting to peak the surface again. And moral injury is, you know, you've been told when you've been told your whole life, killing's wrong, turn the other cheek, love thy enemy, all of those things. And then you are trained to go over and do the very thing that you've been raised to believe is morally wrong. Mm-hmm. That's an injury, right? When you come back and you're like, I took a lot of lives. How does that affect my soul, my spirit? And a lot of people get really tripped up because they're like, oh, now you're going to religion. You know, now you're going to a place. And a lot of guys get real uncomfortable with that because I feel like, um, well, for example, uh, it's in my book that somebody had said, why does it matter? I'm going to hell anyway. It doesn't matter about life choices because I've already morally done everything to get me into, you know, hell. So I might as well just burn it down now. That came from a deep sense of having a religious background, having this moral belief that killing was wrong. And no amount of training was able to get him to truly believe what he was doing was right. Mm -hmm. So this happens often. Tom just started exploring it this past year in his own life and really looking at how did that affect me? Not just emotionally, not just physically, but in my soul, in my spirit. How did war damage me or injure me and it was much deeper than he thought you know he never would have gone there and, and it's been the last piece of his puzzle I truly feel like 
that has been extremely profound for him in healing. Wow. Um, yeah, because you, you, you know, you don't often, again, it's, it's something that, you know, we all kind of take for granted that it's probably an issue, but then, you know, maybe because of how, how revered, um, what our operators do is and how they are rightfully put on a pedestal as the, the, you know, the baddest, the best, uh, you know, the alphas among us, the heroes, right. And it's almost like they're doing the right thing. Right. And so you, you, you forget, I mean, you know, at the time of the Vietnam war is probably, as you said, it was probably a bit more prevalent, you know, this was, this was an issue. Um, but you know, like you said, that quote in your book from someone, one of, one of the guys you were speaking to was telling you they're going to hell anyway. So why should I, why should I care about anything anymore? So the injury, the injury, even if you don't realize it could absolutely be festering within you. Um, so I want to talk about how do you heal that? Like, like how do you, how do you heal that kind of thing? I, you mentioned, um, uh, having a conversation with Sebastian, uh, younger. Oh, yeah. Right. Um, right. Best-selling author of Tribe, um, and you asked him what he thought was the most beneficial uh, for recovery. What, what what did what did he tell you? He uh, is a fascinating guy, and if you haven't read Tribe, pick it up. It's a little book. It was mm-hmm. so profound for me and for Tom to read that to really understand warfighters coming home, the importance of Tribe, the importance of healing, the way that it's been done in the Native American community, um, how we differ there. So it's a okay. fascinating book and it, it's really, really interesting, short little read. But I asked him, I said, hey, I'm writing a book. Can I um, can I talk to you? And he's written, he did the documentary Korangal and Restrepo. Um, I think he's won an Academy Award or two. So I didn't mm-hmm. like expect to hear back from him. 15 minutes later, he's like, here's my phone number. Wow. Wow. Hey, Sebastian. Um, he said... Really, and so he embedded for a long time as a journalist. So he was over in Afghanistan, all over the world. And I said, "What is this for you? This moral injury, and what can, how can our soldiers hear?" And he's storytelling, storytelling, all through time, all since the beginning of time. In fact, it's part of the Native American tradition. When the warriors would come back after war, they would share their stories, not with each other, not with other warriors. And that was really important. They had to share it with the people that they were serving and protecting. So he said, imagine if our soldiers came home and they shared their story with just a civilian grandma next door or, you know, some some person down the street. And they came back and they shared their story of protecting them, what that would do for their I mean, I can't even imagine. So Sebastian actually started this. He started a program where it's like it's called Town Hall. So COVID happened and I don't think it's happened since. But it's any town, any person can get a gathering together at the town hall where veterans can come and they can share their stories with the community, with the people that they serve to protect and signed up. Incredibly powerful. Um, Tom started talking about Mogadishu. Um, the beginning of his book starts off with me asking him about Black right. Hawk Down. Right. And we're sitting in a cafe in, he, in St. Louis and he just started bawling. And I'm like, whoa, what did I do? Because like you said, you know, you you think of them as men of steel, like mm-hmm. no emotion and so hard that 
it, it took me back and he couldn't get through it. He couldn't talk about it. And I was like, whoa, okay, we don't need to go there. And then it was like a month later, I was like, when was the last time you talked about Somalia? And he was like, 20 years ago. And I'm like, what? Wait, why haven't you talked about it? Mm-hmm. And and so we did. We started talking about it. And every time he would choke up, he would break down until he could tell it without. Until now where he, you know, he goes on podcasts, he talks. And um, I won't say it doesn't bother him, but he's able mm-hmm. to share that story. It's so important. The other thing he said is one of the greatest disadvantages is the ego because that can really trip you up. If you have a sense of nobody out here understands me, everybody needs to be appreciative of me, he's like, you're going to live a pretty miserable life because every single person on this planet is thinking about themselves. It's just how we're built. You know, the world revolves around me. So, um, and I tell Tom all the time, he's like, did you ever think about the military before we met? I'm like, no. Did you ever think about advertising? I mean, (laughs) you know, like sitting around thinking what I was doing. So um, the ego can really trip people up. And that's one thing he said that we need to really get in check with too. And I thought that was a pretty interesting perspective. Yeah. I mean, that whole, I I, I think that's amazing. Uh, The whole idea of sharing your stories with your tribe and just, I mean, how incredibly cathartic it is. Um, so that's, yeah, that's very strong advice. Um, I also, I, w- I want to ask about the the biology of PTS. You bring it up in the book and it, uh, you know, cause you talk about how, for, you know, willpower is, 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 is bullshit. Um, willpower is not going to get you over this. Um, and I want to kind of put it in context to something, you know, you said in the book, um, <clears throat> So here's, here's a quote. Um, Many who served under Tom said that his calm and confident voice over the radio got them through some of the most horrible scenarios that they were involved in. Tom did well in the chaos of war. He was one of the most well-trained soldiers in one of the most elite units in the world. Yet the chaos at home like kids screaming and dogs barking. Someone's at the door. The dinner is burned. Uh, Jen, why can that cause those suffering from PTS to unravel? Like you said, there's, you know, elite special operators are like super collected in combat, but like all of a sudden the dog's barking and it's like, you know, so what's the, what's the biology there? What's the deal? Yeah, it's really that with, PTS, the brain sees the beginning, the middle, and searches for the end, right? So of a story. Um, With Tom, because he was involved in so many different instances where he had lost control. He was not in control anymore. You know, things were beyond uh, anything that he could do. So in that moment of chaos, when there's Black Hawk that just went down, there's 40 different guys here, he could get very, very focused and rely on his training, his muscle memory. He was very, very good at that. In fact, guys, um, one of the guys from C Squadron had just said, you know, hearing your voice over the radio was so calming and there was so much chaos, but you were always one of the people on the radio that just was very methodical, very calm, and it calmed me. And I said, why can't you do that at home? What, right. you know, here, here you've got guys down and helicopters down in vehicles and you did that over and over and over again 
for 20 years and then you get home and the dog's barking and the kid didn't pick up poop today from the dogs and it's chaos and mm-hmm. it's an explosion and it's anger. Um, why? And it's because the brain sees chaos, right? This okay. is disorder, right? And it doesn't distinguish war from dogs, kids, cup in the sink. It, it can't read that way. So it says, this is chaos. There's a lot of stuff going on. How mm-hmm. do I get control of this chaos? I go back to my training. I go back to my muscle memory. I got to get on top of it. Because if I don't, somebody's going to die. And you could say, rationally, that doesn't make sense. Nobody's going to die because the dog poop didn't get picked up today. Mm-hmm. But we're not talking about rational. We're talking about biology. Right. And the way that the brain sees it is, this is chaos. I've got to get control and order or somebody, something bad's going to happen. And it's never conscious thought. It's not like Thomas sitting around thinking that. It's just within a second how the body, the brain reacts to a stressful situation. Yeah, that you said it there, that muscle memory that, you know, these special operators have been trained a certain way to deal with these chaotic situations and they can. Yes, absolutely. Brilliantly. Right. Because they've got a, they've got a plan for it and they know how it's, they they know how it should end uh, if they implement said plan. Yes. Um, But yeah, there's, you know, what happens when someone bangs on the door and you weren't expecting the bang and, you know, okay, yes. I'll do what I did in war, yep. but that ain't, you know, you can't do that. So then I could imagine all the stress that erupts. Um, <clears throat> another important thing I want to bring up that you talk about in the book. So I'll quote you here. We bring up this issue. I recently had a call with a ranger named Jim, 32 years old home from his fourth deployment and countless training exercises, schools, combat. His last rotation was a bitch. He came home to a wife and three kids, all of whom had noticed a shift in his behavior after his second deployment when he lost two of his men. This time, they were met with a man who they barely recognized. There was now no light moments when he was around, no loving moments, Sometimes I just get so angry, said Jim, like raging angry. And I don't know why. I don't know where it comes from. When I start yelling at my wife or getting short with the kids, I feel like it's an out-of-body experience. Like I'm standing there watching me say what I'm saying, but it's not coming from me. I can't stop saying awful things, even though all I'm thinking in that moment is shut the F up. Just stop but I can't. I don't know why. And I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm too screwed up now. They would be better off without me. Tom has had friends, elite warriors, badasses who were beyond capable in every aspect of their job come home and really hurt their spouse in a fit of rage or injure their children. A few have killed their wives Those men are now dead. They almost always committed suicide immediately after the act was done and the rage evaporated. So, Jen, you you say that the number one question that you are asked by hundreds of combat warriors is, why am I so angry all the time? Why do I react this way to stupid shit? God, why can't I get control of my anger? So how do you respond to that? It is. It is the number one 
entrance into All Secure Foundation has helped me with my anger. Um, you know, I when I really started to understand as best as I can as a civilian mm-hmm. person who has never been overseas in combat, um, would never try to pretend I know what that's like. Um, I try to empathize and I feel like I had a little bit of a view just stateside, but the tools that are necessary and the anger one, it's a big one. It's a mm-hmm. huge tool um, of war, right? Mm-hmm. Anger, violence, speed, all of those things can be required to get it done. Like Tom said, I couldn't leave the gate every day in a happy, good place thinking about my wife and kids. I listened to death metal and I got angry. I got as angry as I could to go Mm -hmm. out that gate to do what I needed to do. Um, So that became muscle memory as well, that anger, that emotion. And so many of the guys will say like, I don't feel anything. I don't have any emotions. I'm like, that's BS. You do. It's anger. It's rage. It's You do have emotions. You're talking about you're not feeling the emotions that you wish you had back. The ones like loving and um, caring and concern and empathy and compassion. And that's because those had to get switched off because you can't really be empathetic and compassion as you're interrogating a terrorist. It doesn't work. You have to be angry. You have Mm -hmm. to put yourself into a, a mindset of war. And that becomes muscle memory. Your brain and your body all start to react that way. It's like, have you ever met somebody who's really negative? And they're always, doesn't matter. Everything that comes out of their mouth is always negative. It's a habit. You can change and become a positive person, but it's going to take a lot of time because you're always going to think negatively until you do it over and over again in a positive way. You can retrain, but that anger is so necessary to stay alive over here. Mm-hmm. switch it off for two months while you're home and then turn it back on and then switch it off and then turn it back on. It doesn't work that way. Mm. Yeah. If only it did. Um, right. We'd have but, a lot more soldiers with us. So I want to talk about, you know, some of, some of the solutions that you've come up with. Um, you say, you know, so much of healing with PTS is, is creating awareness around the situation and then creating a path to a healing solution. And you talk about this one's really interesting. One of one of the big guns in your arsenal is that you both define and name the different personalities that make you who you are. So, like for you, as I've read in the book, you have Jenna and Jenny besides Jen. So you've got these different personality traits. Tom, as we alluded to earlier, has crawler, his call sign when he was with Delta Force. So you acknowledge and actually name the specific parts of your personalities that come out under stress. Yet, and here's a quote, while calling attention to these dark parts of ourselves, there is no judgment. Tom and I agreed never to use this knowledge disparagingly or to harm or hurt each other. Can you explain how and why acknowledging these different personalities that manifest when triggered is an important part of healing and how other couples can use this recognition to heal? Oh, absolutely. It was life-changing. I'm so glad you brought that up Um, because we've taught that tool to other people and they've said the same thing. It's not, it feels, a lot of this stuff feels a little weird when you start it, right? And a lot of the guys are like, you want me to do what? You know, you want me to name my part of me and we'll name your part of you. But Stacy, I'll never forget, we sat in her office and she said, um, well, 
you know, you've got a gen. You've got different parts of you. You've got the gen that you go out with your girlfriends on a Friday night, you know, when you're going to dinner with your family on Sunday, when you're intimate with your husband, when you're hanging out with your kids. You are always different parts of you, different pieces of you are showing up. So how does the trauma show up for you? Well, that stemmed mainly from when I was a child. So that was Jenny and Jenny behavior. So I started recognizing that pattern of when I brought my trauma into our relationship, when I was bringing Jenny forward, the mm -hmm. insecure, the small, all the things and in, in, in really the armor I had put up as a little kid to survive was showing up in my relationship. I didn't even know it. Um, and so with Tom, it was the same thing. Like I was able to say, okay, I, I'm seeing that he's getting agitated, right? He's like, I'm going to go upstairs and I'm going to check the kids' rooms. And, I'm gonna, and I would say, hey, I don't need Crawler to go up and check the rooms. All right? Just letting him know that awareness piece. Right. And immediately he's like, I am. I'm storming up these stairs like Crawler. I'm going to go get business done. I'm going to do it fast. I'm going to do it, you know, however it needs to get done. And it's just almost like how we talked about that switch, flipping it back off for a second, going, man, I am approaching this like Jenny. I am coming at him feeling very insecure. Therefore, I'm being judgmental. Or maybe I'm accusing him of flirting with a girl or something. Where is this coming from? And I'm like, I don't know. He's like, I think that's Jenny. And I'm like, I think you're right. I'm feeling really insecure right now, or I'm feeling really this mm -hmm. right now. It helps us identify what parts are showing up and kind of the hurt parts that are showing up. We never, ever, ever use it as a tool. Um, I've never used Crawler. I respect the hell out of Crawler. I love Crawler. Mm -hmm. I just don't want him in my kitchen. Doesn't belong there, you know. He doesn't belong right. in the house. He belongs to the war, like I said. Mm -hmm. um, and Jenny really doesn't belong in our relationship either. It's natural and normal that Crawler and Jenny are going to show up, mm -hmm. but just identifying those parts helps us go. Okay, I recognize. I see. This is the behavior I'm in, and I want to change it to over here. Yeah, incredible. Like you said, you know, when you know when you're faced with these solutions, at first you're like, "This is kind of weird." <laughs> yeah, but... little. <laughs> But then you read through in your book about how it works and, and it makes so much sense. Yeah. And what, what matters most is the practical nature of these things and it actually working, not these, like you say, PowerPoints and, you know, all, all this, you know, uh, you know, just psychological theories, but just right. in, in practice, what you're putting forward in this book is, is advice that works. And it's worked for you. It's working for others. Um, it's not just the mental and spiritual pain um, that these operators and uh, combat vets go through with PTS. It's the physical damage and chronic pain that these operators feel as well, right? Exactly. So there's that aspect to it. Um, you became a certified health coach. Um, talk about healing the body and nutrition and what you did with Tom in this respect. Because that played a big part as well in, in so his feeling. I don't think that Tom, even he started Transcendental Meditation and a few other things before he physically took care of his body. Okay. And even now he says, I would have done so much better if I would have started with nutrition. If I would have got my body right, I would have been more receptive to the other things. But I was, you know, happiness is created in the gut. So the food that you eat is what's going to create all the hormones that make you happy or help you sleep or all of the things that we need. And really what I noticed, I was like, this lifestyle is crazy. I don't know how you guys even get through this because 
I've never been so tired and I've had two kids. You know, it's right. This is insane tired and this cannot be healthy for you. And then not to mention they work nights. So um, their schedules are reversed all the time. And then they got to come home and they literally Tom would land, uh, go from Iraq to, you know, his kids baseball game within 48 hours. And so, yeah, it's just it really is an intense lifestyle and mm-hmm. all along he's eating like crap he's drinking rippets he's having you know four or five of those a day i'm like how your heart did not explode i don't even know you know i <laughs> we have rules about those drinks in the house now mm-hmm. and um he gets one monster a day and even that i'm like you're over 50 buddy so bump 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 watching you for a heart attack and right um but he did he he really went through a process of eliminating a lot of the food that causes inflammation inflammation in your body is 85% of all disease comes from inflammation. Our operators inflammation is literally off the chart. People have had their inflammation tested and literally doctors are like, I don't even know what to do with this. This is crazy. Um, Vitamin mineral deficiencies, not having enough magnesium or um, not having enough melatonin. So they're not sleeping right. They're not creating enough happy hormones. Um, And everybody knows what it feels like to be like super, super tired and you're agitated, you're crabby, you're not focused. Imagine living that way, like living in a chronic state of tired. Um, Your body needs you to sleep, to repair and to detox. So these guys are running in really toxic body systems, which is affecting their brain, the PTS, it's affecting relationships. It's it's so critical. In fact, there's a Thomas starting with Cleveland Clinic right now to do a mm-hmm. whole nother elimination um, process again through his diet, through his blood, wow. removing heavy metals um, in that process. Because if you can't get your body right, um, it's really hard to get the mind and spirit right. And, and like you said, with chronic pain, um, Tom's had nine surgeries. He has titanium all up his neck, his back. Every morning he wakes up, he's in chronic severe pain, and it's it's so depressing. Um, when you look at the research, what chronic pain does, and you put it next to PTS, you're like, wow, okay, so now this on top of this, you know, not not to only deal with all the things that happened in war, but now chronically feeling um, pain all the time. And, and for Tom, he knows it's never going to go away. He knows this is how he's going to live the rest of his life, which can be depressing on top Mm -hmm. of depressing. So it it plays a huge, huge role. Yeah. It's so critical to, to make that distinction, uh, that it's, it's not just getting right psychologically, right? Spiritually. It's, it's huge, huge, huge factor is what you just talked about there regarding the nutrition. I know you offer some insights into that with all secure, and again, you know, you, you bring all these elements together. Um, I've got one more question for you because you've been very generous with your time. Um, I love talking to you. This is great. Awesome. So I, this is this is the last question I have. I, w- I, want, I want to kind of end it on this note because things started to really pile up for you and weigh you down um, recently. You know, what with the pandemic and, and COVID and how, how stressful that's been for everybody. But- on top of that, you spend all your time trying to save everyone's life. Essentially, that's what you're doing with PTS. Um, it's it's not just the stress; it's it's the lives that are at stake through suicide and and violent 
um, you know, violent deaths at the hands of those with PTS and the suicides of of those in the family surrounding the individual that has PTS. So there's a lot of a lot of um, horrible consequences that come along with this. And so you're really trying to save someone's life. And you talk about how in the book that overwhelming stress started to really weigh down on you when your own PTS started coming out and your friend Sarah um, said something incredibly profound that had a, a major impact on you that kind of brought you out of what you were experiencing very recently. And I think this advice is super important for, for people to hear. Um, it's, it's, you know, I think it's very profound. Can you tell us what Sarah told you? Yeah. About, I love Sarah. Yeah. Sarah is one of my super wise old soul friends. And over the summer I said, listen, you know, I've been at this, well, started training seven years ago. So really in this community the last seven years and, and have lived with PTS my whole life. And I said, you know, there's guys that I've been helping for years, you know, and, and I've been helping Tom for years. And there's just so many days where I'm so afraid that I'm going to get a phone call, you know, that so-and-so committed suicide or so-and-so. And I'm like, oh my God, just... I, I want to catch them all. I want to save them all. I have to help them. And it, it really was keeping me up at night. It was eating up at my stomach. I kept feeling like I'm going to miss someone. Um, or I'm I'm not going to be able to do enough for them. Or I won't be able to help them in the way. Or maybe I'm not getting the message across right to them. Mm-hmm. And it was a huge weight. It was much heavier than I even gave credit to. And I was telling Sarah, I said, I'm scared I'm not going to be able to save them all. And she was like, what makes you think you have that power? And I'm like, what? And she's like, you can't save anyone. She said, Jen, you're a lighthouse. You're this big lighthouse with this bright light. And you've got these guys and gals that are out in the middle of the ocean in a raft. And it's dark as heck out there. All you could do is shine your light and say, come this way. I've got, I've got the shore. I've got the safety. I've got food. I've got fire, you know, but... Jen, they've got to row. You know, you can't go out there and get them. That's their job to row towards you. You just keep shining your light. You just keep providing what you can provide and let the people do the work they need to do because you don't have the power to save someone. Also, if you try to do the work for them, you're robbing them of the experience of learning for themselves. And that's their journey to learn, not yours. I thought, (laughs) thank you, Sarah. Amazing. Amazing. Absolutely. And I, you know, I thought that was really profound when I read it in the book. Um, and you know, the great news is you do have the, the, the tools, you do have the experience, you do have the advice and the answers to, to help people actually find their way to shore. You've got it. Right. And, and the book is, we, I mean, to be fair, there's so much more in this book that we couldn't even cover, which is why I think it's so important that anyone who has PTS, who thinks they have PTS, who knows someone with PTS, or even if you're just interested in the topic um, or or Jen's story uh, and Tom's story, because it's a great uh, story of overcoming challenges, I, I, I highly recommend that they get your book. Um, where can where can our audience find out more about you 
you know, where can they connect with you? Well, I'm at allsecurefoundation.org. Uh, the book is for sale there. So that's going to get you a signed copy and 100% of the proceeds go back to All Secure Foundation. So every dime of that's going back to support warriors and warrior families. Awesome. You can also get it at all the major retailers, independent bookstores, Amazon's got it up, um, Barnes and Noble, Apple. Somebody else is reading my book right now, actually, for the uh, audio. And um, we're on all the social media platforms, um, Facebook, Instagram, is All Secure Foundation. Mm -hmm. I also have a program called Virago, V-I-R-G-A-O. People are like, what is that? It's uh, it stands for Woman Warrior. It's really a support network for us spouses and um, lifting each other up, empowering each other. We just started a book club. So people are getting real bored and tired of each other. So start up something new for some <laughs> mm -hmm. community. But yeah, I'd love, I'd love to hear from people. So the contact button at allsecurefoundation.org goes directly to me. Okay. And from there, I sift it out to where it needs to go. So absolutely reach out. Amazing, amazing. You know, Jen, I often um, say thank you for your service and, um, you know, how much respect I have for the sacrifices our, our combat vets and special operators make, but thank you for your service and for how much of yourself uh, you're sacrificing to be that shining beacon of light, helping a lot of these operators and, and combat vets find uh, hope and uh, find their way back home and make it to shore. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Jen, it's been great. You take care. Great. Yeah, it was so nice to see you. Absolutely. Same here. Let's talk again soon. That'd be great. Take okay. care. Have a good night. You too.